My goal in, in preparing this series of lessons, because as I've probably said to all of you at some point in time over the last, course of the last 10 years, you know, the best lessons that I ever teach, I teach to myself first. And my goal, first and foremost, in presenting this series of lessons was to go back to the teachings of Jesus and let him teach me some new things. Because most of these texts are things that I have read dozens of times in my life and have taught from some of them many times, most of them at least once or twice before. But it was important to me at the beginning of this year to go back and revisit some of the teachings of Jesus. Because, you know, when we think about Jesus as the Word of God, we realize that all of God's revealed Word is Jesus, and He embodies everything that's in that text. But yet there are those, por those portions that reflect the words that he actually spoke when in the flesh during his personal ministry, that three and a half year period when he was preaching and teaching here on earth in, a, in, a, in physical form. And it was important to me to go back to those words, some of them very familiar, and let some new teaching arrive out of that. Not that it's new, because obviously he spoke all of these words 2,000 years ago, but to allow myself to see some new things that I hadn't seen before in the hope that if, if those lessons got into my head, that I would be able to share some new things with you. And I hope that as we've gone through the course of these lessons, that we have done that. Go ahead, Jay, and put the, the, the first slide up for me, if you would, please. These two accounts that we are going to look at this morning certainly fall into the realm of, these are like real familiar things, particularly one of them. These are like really familiar accounts from the life of Jesus. All of us have heard these two stories probably many, many times, and have drawn probably the, the, the easiest surface lesson from each of these two accounts. But as I was reading them in preparation for this lesson, one of the things that occurred to me was that these two things are connected, not just thematically, but they're connected spiritually in a way that had never occurred to me before. And also to realize, as we have seen with so many of these texts that we've looked at, of Jesus speaking to people, teaching them, that oftentimes he's teaching a lesson that we don't get the first dozen or so times that we hear him teach that lesson. And I hope that we'll see that as we go through these two accounts this morning. The first one we're going to look at is the, the question of the temple tax. This is in Matthew, the 17th chapter, verses 24 through 27. And this is what Matthew records. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax 
came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay temple tax? Yes, he does, Peter replied. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Of the two stories that we're going to look at, this is the only one that appears only in Matthew's Gospel. The other story we're going to look at appears in all three of what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, synoptic is, is that Greek-derived word that means they see alike, and they tell sim a similar story in a similar way. But this is a story that only Matthew tells, and is, of course, it's pertinent that Matthew finds these two stories interesting, because the one thing that we know about Matthew outside of him having been an apostle and a writer of the first of the Gospels that we find in the New Testament is that Matthew was a tax collector by trade. And so stories about tax would have stood out to Matthew because that was something he well understood and related to. Now this particular tax that's being discussed here, the temple tax, goes back to Exodus, the 30th chapter. So all the way back to the time of Moses. Because in that 30th chapter of Exodus, beginning of verse 11, here's what God said to Moses. He said, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those who already count, those who are already counted, is to give a half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than half a shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making an atonement for your lives. This is what the collectors of the temple tax were referring to when they came to Peter and asked him, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? They were talking about this tax that God instructed Moses to collect all the way back in Exodus chapter 30, that every Israelite 20 years old and older every year was required to pay a half shekel to the temple well, in those days, as, 
as God said to Moses, was the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Later the temple would be built. But for the purpose of the service of the temple, that is to say to provide for the needs of the temple. Everybody, every adult had a responsibility to pay this half shekel tax. And this is what these collectors are coming to Peter to ask, doesn't Jesus pay this? But what I want us to notice about this tax is that it wasn't just a tax. God refers to it as a ransom for one's life. He refers to it as an atonement for one's life. You know, when we pay taxes to the state, or we pay taxes to the federal government, we are not ransoming or atoning for anything. We are paying for the support of the infrastructure of the society in which we live. The temple tax, on one, on one part, had a certain measure of that. That is to say, it provided for the infrastructure that supported the place where God's people interfaced with God. But God said it was more than just that. This was more than just about them giving money so that the tabernacle or later the temple could be paid for. God said specifically that this half shekel was a ransom for one's life. That it was an atonement for one's life. And I want us to think about that as we look at the conversation that Jesus has with Peter. Because Peter, when asked the question, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? As we've talked about before, Peter was always the first one to, to, to speak up, even when he didn't always know what he was talking about. Peter answered the question, oh, well, of course he does. Peter probably had no idea what Jesus perspective on the temple tax was at this particular moment, but asked the question, doesn't Jesus pay the temple tax? Well, yeah, of course he does. But I noticed that when Peter gets back to the house where Jesus and the apostles are staying, Peter doesn't get the opportunity to ask Jesus, Lord, do, do, we, pay the, do we pay the temple tax? In fact, Matthew specifically writes and when, you know, when the way Scripture works is nothing's written there by accident. When we, when we see something in Scripture, it's always there for a reason. So when Matthew writes this, there's a point that he's making. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was first to speak. Jesus didn't wait for Peter to ask the question because Jesus had a point Jesus wanted to make having known already that that conversation between Peter and the tax collectors had taken place. He said, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Valid question. If I was a king and I had my own country, my children would not pay tax because they were my children, and I don't want them paying tax. And so Jesus makes that point. If you're a king on earth, 
Do you collect tax from your own children? The answer is no. You collect it, as Peter rightly answers, from others. And Jesus then says, well then, the children are exempt. The children are exempt. Jesus is demonstrating here that the children of the king are exempt because they have already been ransomed. Remember, this is not just a tax in the way that we normally think about taxes. God specifically said, this half shekel represented a ransom for your life. This was what you were worth. This was the price of your life. And paying it was atonement. Paying it was justification for your continued existence. But Jesus is saying that the children of the king have already been ransomed. Their atonement has already been paid. That's why the children are exempt. In the case of a, a general tax, the children are exempt because the king doesn't want his children paying tax. But in this case, the children of the king are exempt because he's already paid for them. In the days of Moses, there was yet no atonement. So a symbolic ransom had to be paid. There had yet been no price paid for the souls of the people. So the people had to pay a price every year that reflected symbolically their redemption in the form of a half shekel. But now in Christ, there is ransom and there is atonement for the king's children. And the children do not have to pay that price for themselves. The children, Jesus says, are exempt. Why? Because their father has already provided the means for their ransom to be paid. Think about that occasion many, many centuries before when God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac. Go out three days journey to a place that I'm going to show you and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And we read that Abraham got up early the next morning, packed up his stuff, got his son, and they started out. Three days later they arrived in the place where God had designated Abraham prepared an altar and was going to sacrifice his son. And God stayed his hand. God said, Abraham, don't do that. You've proven your loyalty. But there's a ram over there in the bush. I want you to sacrifice it instead. That ram died so that Isaac could live. That symbol carries forward in the death of Christ being the sacrificial lamb for all of us. Jesus paid the ransom. Jesus put the coin in the box that atones for our souls. 
which is why we, as the children of God, are exempt from having to pay that price for ourselves. The king has already paid our ransom with the blood of his son. So then why this weird thing with the fish? Why does Jesus tell Peter to go down to the lake, throw a fishing line in the water, pull out the first fish he catches, open its mouth, and find a coin that was worth the price of both Peter's and Jesus' temple tax? Why is that, why is that strange bit of business necessary? Again, Jesus never performed these works of power without a reason for it. And here's what's going on in that strange little miracle. The temple tax was the atonement. The temple tax was the ransom. But the lesson for Peter was that atonement is not achieved by one's own efforts. Atonement is obtained only through the exercise of God's power. Yeah, Peter could have come up with a half shekel to pay the tax. I mean, he had probably been doing that however many years it had been since he was 20. But in reality, in the spiritual sense, Peter could not buy his own atonement. Jesus had to provide. Peter's atonement by means that only Jesus could provide. And that's why the lesson is for Peter, Peter, if you're going to pay the tax this year, it's going to be because I'm going to work a work of wonder by which your tax gets paid. To put the thought in Peter's mind that his atonement did not come from himself, but came by the power of God through Jesus. But, here's what we notice. Action was still required on the part of Peter. Peter still had to go down to the lake with his fishing line, throw the line into the water, catch a fish, pull it out, and get the coin out of its mouth. If Peter had never done that, he would have never had the coin to pay the tax. Jesus provided by his power the means for the tax to be paid, but Peter still had to go get it. Action was still required on Peter's part. He had to trust in Jesus enough to believe that if he did what Jesus said, that if he went down to the lake threw his line in the water and caught a fish, there was going to be a four-drop coin in that fish's mouth when he pulled it up on land. If Peter never followed Jesus' command, he could not obtain the price of his atonement. What's the lesson there? The lesson is that God has paid the price of our atonement. He has paid the ransom for our souls through the, the blood of His Son. But 
We still have to act to obtain it. There's still something beyond simply believing that it's possible that's necessary for us to obtain that atonement, to obtain that ransom. We have to, to use the figure of the miracle, go down to the lake and throw our line in the water. Or we have to go down to the water and be buried with Christ in baptism and raised. To walk in newness of life. People sometimes ask, why is that necessary? How come I got to do that? Well, there's your answer. Because the lesson is, yes, your atonement is paid for by God. You can't buy it for yourself. You can't provide the price. He's done that already. But you still have to go get it. There is still action that is required on your part. And that's why when we hear people talk about, as we often do, salvation by faith only, those people have missed the lesson of Scripture. Because when we go to James chapter 2, which is the only place in the entire New Testament where the words faith and only, or faith and alone, appear side by side. Nowhere else in Scripture but in James chapter 2. And what does James say there? That faith is, that salvation is by, by works and not by faith alone. Not by faith only. We can't buy our own atonement. We can't pay our own ransom. That's already been done for us. But there is still action required on our part if we want to make that real in our own lives. You can't just believe. You have to believe and do. That's how it works. Peter had to understand his tax had already been paid. Jesus, by his power, had already paid the ransom. But Peter still had to go down to the water and get it. And you and I have to do that very same thing. Now we're going to look at another instance that stood out to Matthew because he was a tax collector. That has to do with tax, but this is a very different tax. This is a tax more like the taxes we are familiar with. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, we read that the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And the Herodians were a faction that were loyal to King Herod and his house. So you had the religious leaders in the Pharisees and then you had these political leaders in the Herodians. And they both, both of these groups send their representatives to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Here's a lesson, by the way. If somebody starts a conversation by telling you how great you are, they are up to something more often than not. 
That's certainly the case here. They start out by buttering Jesus up. Oh, teacher, you're a man of integrity. You teach the way of God in accordance with truth. You aren't swayed by others. You pay no attention to who they are. So, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now they drop the hammer. Should we be paying taxes to the Roman government? Or should we not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, so, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God was God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. They left him and they went away. Now this tax that they're asking about, the Jewish people hated paying taxes to the Roman government, just like none of us love paying taxes. But they particularly hated paying taxes to the Roman government for a number of reasons. Number one, the Romans were invaders and oppressors. The Romans had stormed into their country, had taken over put themselves in charge, and now demanded tribute from their vassal state in Judea. So the Jews didn't like paying taxes to the Romans, first of all, because they didn't feel like the Romans had a right to ask them for taxes. The second layer was the people that the Romans hired to collect the tax, people like Matthew had been, people like another man we read about in the New Testament whose name was Zacchaeus, who also had that job. The tax collectors, for the most part, were corrupt. Because see, here was the deal. The Romans said, we want everybody to pay X amount of tax. But the tax collectors were the only people who knew how much that was. You know, today when you pay your taxes to the IRS, or you pay them to the state, you, go, you can go online or you can get, you know, TurboTax or whatever it is, and you can see exactly what the government has said that based on your income and the deductions that you have, what the government says you should pay. Nothing like that existed. There was no TurboTax in the first century. There was no website from the IRS where you could go and see what the tax was. You had to take the word of the tax collector because the tax collector was the only one who knew how much the tax was supposed to be. Tax collector might have been told, get everybody to pay a denarius. Tax collector could have said, but everybody comes in, I'll tell them to pay three denarii. 
That way I give the Romans the one denarii they asked for and I get to keep the other two. That was how the tax collection business worked under the Roman Empire in the first century. The tax collectors could keep whatever they could get over and above what the Romans actually wanted. And so they often charged far more than was required so that they could get rich. Everybody knew that the tax collectors were doing this. Nobody could do anything about it, but everybody knew. And so everybody hated the tax collectors. Not just like, you know, we're not thrilled about tax collectors, but they hated these people because they were thieves and robbers and criminals and indeed, as most of the people saw it, traitors to their own people because they were stealing this money from their own people in the name of the Roman government, whom everybody hated. Not only that, but they didn't get any real benefit from the tax. The tax went back to Rome. The Romans did whatever they wanted to do with it. And what they wanted to do with it mostly wasn't improving the streets and the sewer system and whatever else in Judea. So they were giving this money to the Romans and not seeing any benefit from it. So the bottom line is everybody hated paying the, the imperial tax. However, nobody dared say that. Nobody dared say, we ought not to pay taxes to the Romans. Because that would have been an act of sedition and treason. And one would have lost one's life for so doing. And that's what the Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to get out of Jesus. When they ask him, should we be paying taxes to Caesar or not? Because, see, they put him in the horn of a dilemma. If Jesus says, well, of course we should pay taxes to Caesar, then the people will turn against him because he's advocating something they hate. But if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees can go tell the Romans, hey, you've got this guy telling people not to pay tax, and the Romans will take care of Jesus. So they have Jesus as they perceive it on the horns of a dilemma. But notice what Jesus does. He says, show me the coin that you use to pay the tax. And the fact that they can produce a coin demonstrates the fact they had no real problem using Roman money when it suited their purposes. Somebody had a denarius on them because they were able to give it to Jesus. So it wasn't really that they had a problem with the Romans and their money. But then Jesus asked them the question, whose picture is this on this coin? Whose name is inscribed on it? Because the image and the inscription signified ownership. If Caesar's face and Caesar's name is on the money, it's Caesar's money. If Caesar's face and Caesar's name is on the money, he has the authority to demand it 
in the form of tax. And so Jesus says, well, if that's Caesar's face, Caesar's name, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Jesus did not dispute the authority of the Roman emperor to demand what was his. If the Roman emperor required tax in the form of Roman money, the Roman emperor had that authority. This echoes, by the way, or presages actually, the teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 13, where Paul talks about our being subject to the civil authorities. And specifically in this, in this particular light, in verse 6 of that 13th chapter, Paul says, this is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You may not like the people in charge. But you still have a responsibility to give them what they are due. If they're due taxes, you pay taxes. If they're supposed to take money from you, you give them that money. If you're supposed to show them respect and honor, you do that because of their office. Give back to Caesar, Jesus had said, what is Caesar's. But then he also said, give back to God what is God's. When we hold up the coin of a human soul, whose image is on it? And whose inscription? Well, we read about that at the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. When we look at ourselves, in whose image are we created? We are created in the image of God, just as surely as that denarius coin was created in the image of Caesar. And if the coin belongs to Caesar because his image is on it, then we belong to God because his image is on us. We are created in the image of God. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give Caesar what has his image on it, and you give God what has his image on it. And that is yourself, your person, your soul, your life. If we are created in the image of God, we are obligated to give ourselves to him fully and completely. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he talks about giving your bodies as a living sacrifice. When we sing that song that Brother Nathaniel led beautifully earlier, all to Jesus I surrender. That's what we're committing to. 
We are saying, I recognize I am created in the image of God. And if God's image is on me, I have a responsibility to give him what belongs to him. And that is myself, my person, my soul, my life. I have a responsibility, if I am created in the image of God, to be crucified with Christ. I have a responsibility to give myself as a living sacrifice to God. Why? Because he has stamped his image on me. I am created in his image. Give back to God, Jesus said, what belongs to God. Now let's connect these two things. The temple tax represented a ransom for one's life. A ransom that one could not truly pay without the power of God. When people paid the temple tax in the days of Moses, it was a symbolic payment. They really couldn't ransom their own lives with a half shekel. It would take the sacrifice of Jesus to ransom the life of everybody who ever paid that half shekel and everybody who would come after. It was a symbol that represented, in God's own words, a ransom for one's life or an atonement for oneself. God's children are exempt, Jesus said, from paying that tax because God has already paid the tax for us. He's paid the ransom. He's paid for our atonement with the blood of Christ. But here's where the second account comes in. God's children, while exempt from paying their own ransom, are still obligated to give God what belongs to Him. That which has His image on it. And again, one of the very first things we read in the word of God, is that we are created in his image. And yes, as God's children, we are free from the responsibility of trying to ransom ourselves, but we are not free from giving back to God what belongs to him, that which bears his image, which is ourselves. The tax we have to pay is not a half shekel every year. And it's not whatever it is we decide to put in the basket or donate online on Sunday morning. The tax that is required of us is the complete giving of ourselves to the God whose image we bear. If we are created in His image, the tax He is due is to get that image back. Give back to God, Jesus said, what belongs to God. That is a tax from which we are not exempt. And in fact, it's one that we as God's children are especially responsible for. Because our ransom, our atonement has been paid. And if we know that, if we understand that, if we believe that, how can we not then, knowing that God has already paid our spiritual tax, 
how can we not then freely and fully give back to Him that which is in us that bears His image, which is, in fact, all of ourselves? So the question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, who's paying your tax? Have you come to Christ and become one of those for whom God has paid the ransom? One of his children for whom he's paid the atonement tax with the blood of his only begotten son. If in fact you've not done that, you have that opportunity. It's still before you. You can't pay it yourself. You are in the same situation as Peter. Until Jesus works a miracle for you, you can't pay the tax. But Jesus has provided the miracle if you'll come to the water and throw your line in, he'll give you the, the payment for the price of your soul. And if you have, in fact, done that, ask yourself seriously the question, am I giving back to God what belongs to God? If I realize and I believe that I'm created in the image of God, do I not know that that means every part of me belongs to him and not to myself? And then I have a responsibility to give him what's his and not to hold it back for myself, but to freely and fully give him what belongs to him, that which bears his image. Am I really paying the tax of sacrificing myself to him? Am I truly crucified with Christ? Am I really giving my body as a living sacrifice? And I can't speak for you, but I know I got work to do in that regard. There's a lot more road I need to travel to get where I need to be in regard to giving everything of myself. And God knows that. He understands that. He knows that we are not perfect. He knows that we have weaknesses and frailties. He knows that we stumble and fall. But what he asks is, if we know that he's already paid the ransom, that we just keep striving to give him what's his. To see himself in ourselves and give back to God what belongs to him. Realize that God has already paid the spiritual tax in Christ, but that we need to keep paying the imperial tax of giving ourselves back to God. Think about that, if you would, this week. Look at your life. Reflect on the ways, first of all, that God has blessed you because he's paid your ransom, because he's bought your atonement, because the blood of his son has freed you from the, the burden of your sins and has written your name in the book of life. And give thanks for that. Give glory to God for that. But also realize that if you know that, you must also know that having been created in the image of God, he wants back what's his. And find 
the determination to give a little more and a little more and a little more each day back to God, that of you which bears his image. Think about that this week, and that's our lesson. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song that Nathaniel's chosen for.